Yo, yo, what is up, everybody? It's Sathya Sam here. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, man, we got a really special interview today with a guy named Tom Karadza. And uh, those of you that have been following the journey for a little bit, you may know that you know in 2017, 2018, uh, 2019, they were some of the hardest years of my life. You know, I, um, between my wife and I, fiance at the time, you know, we lost four grandparents. Her brother died. Um, we had medical bills because my wife was bedridden for you know 18 hours a day, and the doctors didn't know why. Uh, medical bills piling up, and I was making 30k a year, uh, and and in living in one of the most expensive cities in Canada. And in that season is where I decided that I needed to take more control over my my life my money, the opportunities I had in life and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's sort of been a, uh, you know, just kind of a wild ride the last five years since I made that decision in 2019. Uh, been able to grow a very successful business that's quite profitable. I've been able to start doing some investing and have been able to just create a much more stable life, you know, and we've had some other medical challenges since even at the time of this recording, I'm in Jamaica and my son has been hospitalized with pneumonia and it's been tough. Um, but what a difference it is five years later to encounter medical challenges, uh, to know that one, we have the means to take care of it. God's been very gracious to us. Uh, but also to know that, you know, if things did ever dry up or whatever, um, I've built skills, I've, I've developed, um, you know, an ethic that's going to allow me to create the opportunities that I want in my life. And there are a few people that have really attributed um, to or contributed rather to my development and my growth. And in, in the top three people would be Tom Karadza. He uh, is an incredible communicator. He's very personable and he has led me and guided me through so many life decisions I've made these last few years, especially as it pertains to finances and, and economics. And so whether you are you know, really interested in this stuff and you just love nerding out on economics and finances, um, or maybe you're on the other end and you almost hate talking about that stuff because it just seems so mumbo jumbo and drab and boring and who cares, or maybe you're like me and you're somewhere in between. Um, this is a really interesting conversation. Tom has some very un unorthodox views about the economy, about mon monetary policy, and the way he explains things is um, quite quite fascinating. And so I've learned a lot from him over the years. Uh, we do start talking about real estate later on, and then we actually get into a conversation about Bitcoin, uh, which is very, very interesting. I know a little bit controversial, but, uh, but cool to hear kind of his stance and how he reached his stance and everything else. And so um, I think there's a lot to learn from here. And the reason I brought Tom on is because I know that for you guys that are listening, you want to better yourselves. And I know that if you guys can understand the economy the way Tom does, or even a fraction of the way Tom does, you can probably make better decisions for yourselves, for your family, and hopefully continually improve your financial situation and be a bigger contributor in your communities, in your families, in the world, whatever it might be. So that was the heart behind today's uh, interview. Honestly, it was incredible. Uh, Tom is just amazing, and I'm very grateful. Um, two caveats, sorry, this is a bit of a long intro, but uh, I wanna make sure I, I set this up properly. Number one, Tom and I are both based in the greater Toronto area. And so there are times where he starts talking about Oakville, Mississauga, Niagara, St. Catharines. These are all suburbs in the greater Toronto area. You don't need to know what they are, but just understand that they kind of represent the Toronto area. Number two is because we're Canadians, we often um, you know, talk about the Canadian dollar. Uh, in, in this interview, we even mentioned kind of Canadian monetary policy. But if you're in the States or you're in another Western nation, you know, you can insert Canadian with American or British or whatever, and it's it's relatively all the same. In fact, 
the Canadian monetary and economic dynamics basically mimic that of the Americans. So, um, so anyways, just some clarifications there so that you guys have a bit of context and you're able to sort of interpret some of these conversations when some of those, you know, lingo pieces come up. So anyway, that is everything long intro here, but without further ado, here's my interview with Tom Karadza. So here's the million dollar question. How are men like us who work hard, have good motives and a God-given purpose supposed to fulfill the calling on our lives and the dreams in our hearts, all while establishing sexual integrity, thriving relationships, and a meaningful connection with God? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Sathya Sam. Welcome to Unleash the Man Within. All right, well, Tom Carrazza, we've been trying to get you on here for a while, man. Uh, welcome to the show. Glad to finally have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really, really. It's an honor to be here, man. Thank you. Yeah, um, I have been learning from you, your brother, Nick, and a whole conglomerate of you guys about, you know, personal finance, personal development, uh, business building for I think it's about four years now. I mean, this is maybe my fifth year with you guys. Um, I've just I'm so grateful for you. I've learned a ton and I'm, I'm super excited to just dive in and hopefully share some of your wisdom with my audience. I guess maybe as a starting point, you know, you do a lot of research on economics. You've done your homework on monetary policy. You have built a, a really successful business. You have a, a good asset base as well between real estate and some other assets. I guess I'm just curious, how did all this start, man? Like, were you the entrepreneur that was like hustling kids in grade school back in the day and you just always had this bend or how did you get this interest in finances to begin with? Yeah, I, I think I was actually the opposite because you hear that story all the time, right? Like, were you right. the person hustling stuff? I guess I had an early paper route and, you know, I worked on construction sites with my father and kind of got paid uh, for the work that you performed and that kind of stuff. But not really. I was the kid that got good marks in school. So like I went through that journey that like got good marks in grade school, went to high school, got excellent marks in high school, you know, got accepted in an engineering program at the University of Toronto decided I didn't really like going into engineering at the University of Toronto. I ended up uh, taking a double major with psychology and sociology. So from engineering, oh, wow. <laughs> actually, I did my toe in chemistry for a little while. And I'm like, oh, I'm out of that. So yeah. I got this like degree out of university. But the whole path to me was just, you know, good marks. And I kind of fell and I guess this is my own fault because I didn't really think about it critically is that I just fell into the trap of thinking, oh, go to school, get good marks, get a university degree live happily ever after, right? you know, like you're going to stumble into this great job and things are going to be great. You'll buy a house and you'll do all these wonderful things. And the reason that Rockstar Real Estate was born was after I got into the corporate world, I quickly realized that working for an income wasn't going to get me ahead. That like, you know, even though my salary was increasing and I stumbled into the software world after university and the software world was really high paying. Right. And even with a high paying salary in the software world, after taxes, I realized that like, I just couldn't go on vacation as often I wanted to. I couldn't save as much money as I wanted to. You know, we could afford buying a, we could get a down payment. You know, I'm older than you, Sathya, but I, so I could, I could still like, you know, get a reasonable down <laughs> payment together and buy a, yeah. buy, a, buy a house. <laughs> um, but then I kind of realized that like, I'm in traffic every day. My life is kind of beat down. I'm going to, you know, this job that I don't really like, the income was decent, but I'm not really getting ahead. And right in, in my, my lit, you know, mid twenties, late twenties, Nick, my brother and I were buying student rental properties in right. Hamilton, Ontario by McMaster. 
And we had already both flipped a real estate property here and there. Our, our, our family was in real estate. So it's kind of like always bit in our blood. Hmm. Um, and then buying that student rental property, it was cash flowing and it started to go up in value. Hmm. And I was starting to do some math. I'm like, holy smokes, like the income I'm earning from this one property and the equity that I'm building in this property after only owning it for a couple of years is starting to outpace the gains that I'm getting from my job. Hmm. And that really made me question things. I'm like, wait a second, why am I, I'm, I'm driving in traffic. All, and I, I lived in uh, Mississauga and then in Oakville and I was driving in traffic to my job in Toronto. And right. it was traffic, just bumper to bumper. And okay. I'll never forget the highway going to Hamilton was empty at the time. Like there was no traffic going that way. I remember right. thinking, why am I stuck in bumper to bumper traffic with everyone else going this way? When this property I own the other way, it's yep. free and clear sailing on the highway. You know, we're right. just kind of like looking at it, like, wait a second, I think I should be spending more time going that way. Yeah, you know, yeah. maybe I should get another property. The highway's clear. The property just kind of works for me. Right. And, uh, and ultimately, I got frustrated enough in my corporate role that um, I just decided to quit and start Rockstar Real Estate. Back in 2007, which was our first full year, um, Nick and I decided that no, nobody was helping investors. At, the time, at that time, is very different than today. Back then, the real estate community hated investors because you asked questions. You're, you know, you asked about income and you asked about taxes and you asked about vacancies and dealing with tenants. And no one really wanted to work with investors. Hmm. So we thought, okay, what the heck? There's a gap in the market here. We'll get our real estate licenses. We're going to quit our jobs and we're going to help Canadians figure this real estate thing out from an investor mindset. Hmm. And it was just Nick and myself. And now, you know, I guess it's been, you know, I guess 15 years and there's like 60 of us at Rockstar and Rockstar investors have bought several billion dollars in real estate. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's been, it's, it's been a real journey, but it really just came out of frustration that like the path we were on didn't seem to be working. I felt like I was sold a bill of goods, mm. like go, go to school, get good marks, get a good job. And then the live happily ever after part was more like, misery and taxes and crap <laughs> yeah you know so like i was just there was like an internal i was not congruent yeah. like i didn't feel i was living a life that didn't feel right like i was doing all the right things but i just felt off kilter like i wasn't living my own best life or my i wasn't living in purpose with what i believed so there was an incongruency that i had to solve there and that's what yeah. ultimately led, led me to quit my job that's really, really interesting. My father-in-law, were, we were talking about this this morning because I, I think of like the poor souls now who go to university and end up with just a really expensive piece of paper. Um, and, you know, they don't have a lot of economic power. They're not getting hired. And even when they are getting hired, they're making, you know, not really great money, but they have all this debt that they've accumulated that they have to pay off. And then, yeah, how could you possibly save up for a home when all your extra money is just trying to pay off this debt? And you can kind of see the brokenness of the system a little bit. And I know you talk about this quite a bit. Um, like, what do you think is the value of education these days? And how would, how would you be encouraging maybe somebody who is listening, who's a little bit younger, um, who is trying to, you know, increase their economic power in this society? Like, how did, how did you go about doing that? And would it be the same means today? Or do you think it's even different now? Yeah, I guess it's, it's twofold. Like my son is in university right now. Right. So he is yep. going down that path. But the discussions that we have as a family are that university is going to teach you time management, resourcefulness, yep. resiliency, 
when you don't want to do something or you have too much on your plate and you still have to do it anyway because there's a deadline looming, it's mm. going to teach you interpersonal skills. You know, and it, it, there are a lot of skills that you're going to pick up at university. The education in and of itself to me isn't the value anymore, mm. but there are a lot of life skills. He's lived, you know, he's away from home, living with some friends. You kind of have to go through that whole process. So there are a lot of social skills you're picking up and the things like the resourcefulness, the resiliency, your time management skills, your ability to research, your ability to communicate, your ability yes. to write. The boat, you know, the written world, I can't tell you how many emails I'll get from young people and I'll get this email and the grammar's all off and the email's not well formatted. And it, it's silly to judge someone based on their first email to you. But if it's, if the communication's off, it just kind of sets that image of the person that you're dealing with. And it's not, a, unfortunately, it's not a positive image. Right. Um, and then just verbal communication and presentation skills. Yeah. So like all these things you do pick up at university. Now the lessons that he's in a business degree. So the lessons around economics, I don't agree with what, what they're teaching there. Some of sure. the other courses, I'm not sure the value he's getting there. So the discussion we have is that go to university and pick up these, you know, some of these skills that we just discussed. But then when you go into the marketplace, if you're not coming out of university with some unique skills around engineering or accounting or law, or you're not being a pharmacist, like if you don't have skills that you're leaving the university system with, you're then going to have to find skills that the marketplace rewards. Right. So for me, with my psychology and sociology degree, the path that I kind of stumbled down, I'm like, oh, there's this thing called sales. And I was right. scared of it. I knew nothing about it. But the market was paying highly for people who could go into a sales role. Hmm. So I then this, I started buying courses and reading books and like understanding how sales worked. How do you communicate with people? How do you understand what they need? How, how do you map the benefits of what you're selling to their needs? How do you, how does this whole process work? So then I had to do a deep dive with my own investment into just becoming a better salesperson because I decided that that was the skill I was going to bring to the market. And then the market rewarded me handsomely. Like I got paid really well as a salesperson, but I didn't leave university with that. I decided that was going to be the skill that I was going to invest in myself after university and develop. Hmm. And then after that, I realized, oh my gosh, to be good at sales, you need new customer interests at all times. So then I did a deep dive in marketing. And that's what led me to like, oh, there's this thing called sales. But if you don't have new people to speak with, you really are kind of going to struggle as a salesperson. And sometimes when you're in a corporation, the, the, the new people that you are there setting you up to speak with is minimal. Hmm. So can I take that on myself? Can I? So even when I was working in a corporation, I decided I'm going to figure out some marketing things that I could try myself to get new leads or new people, new people in the market to raise their hands and speak with me. Yeah. So then that started a deep dive into marketing. And then that became, I quickly realized, oh, I'm picking up another skill that the market rewards because now I understand how to get people to speak with me. I can then sell that skill to other people. Right. Or I can take these skills of marketing and sales, quit my job and apply these skills to creating my own business, which is what we did with Rockstar Real Estate. Right. I applied my sales skills and my marketing skills to go from just having our realist, two guys with a real estate license in a closet, which is where we were. We were in a closet <laughs> at the first brokerage. It's where they had like the mops and, you know, those stories you hear of like people starting a business, like that was totally us. Wow. We could only afford the office that used to be a closet and they cleared <laughs> everything out of the closet and they rented it to us. 
Wow. Um, so when we quit our job, that was our first office in the back of this brokerage. Yeah, we wouldn't, if you came to visit us, we would, we wouldn't even bring you back into our office. We would, we would just say, okay, you know what? Wait for us in the lobby. We'll, we'll come and speak to you. <laughs> I don't want you to see our office. But, uh, but so for anyone listening, it's like you, you, you need to decide what are the skills that you're presenting to the market? Yes. And the market's going to tell you what it thinks about those skills. Right. If they're not, if you're not getting highly paid, the market's telling you, ah, the skills you're bringing to the table are either not that good or the way that you're showing them and presenting them are not that great. Mm. So that's just the conversation I'll have with, you know, my son and now my daughter, who's, who's, uh, near the end of high school as well. It's like, right. what skills are you bringing to the market? And don't depend on the education system, the way it's set up right now to teach you the skills. They can yeah. teach you those other things, but it's not going to give you skills the marketplace rewards, especially with how fast things are changing now. Yes. You know, with artificial yeah. intelligence and productivity changes in the way the market is, the education system is just not keeping up. It's so interesting. So how do you, how do you manage? Like I, I, I kind of grew up with a different message, which was find something that you're passionate about. Sure. And I think that's sometimes yeah. how people end up in these dead end degrees is they're passionate about something. And then it turns out to have, you know, very little economic advantage. So how do you, how do you kind of tether that? Because I think, um, people could in their pursuit of skills, find something where they like, like kind of your story almost where you're making a lot of money, but then, you know, maybe the work is not really that satisfying or, you know, you're not really getting that fulfillment in life that you're looking for. How do you kind of tether those two elements of this? Because I know when I look at the life you're living and one of your guys' taglines is your life, your terms, like you guys really are not about teaching people how to get rich. Like you're teaching people how to build a life that they can be proud of, uh, whatever that might be for them, you know, whatever that involves. So obviously you guys have managed to strike a balance. I'm just curious what that means to you when you're pursuing skills. How do you not let this get out of control and be all about the money? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think when you're, when you are trying to find out what to spend your life doing, and if you follow your passion and you go to school following that passion, to me, the letdown is that when you leave school following your passion, if you can't find a career that is going to pay you enough to live the life that you want to live, you, you end up being stuck. Mm. So that's why I believe when you boil it all down, that marketing skills and the ability to create something for yourself is the ultimate skill yeah. that yeah. you can bring to yourself and bring to the market. Right. So, you know, chase what you're interested in. Just realize that if you just take a degree in something you're interested in, begin looking at the jobs out there and look at the salaries and the caps on those salaries. So for example, like if engineering is your thing, well, then how much does an entry-level engineer make? And how much does an engineer, engineer make after five years and 10 years? Hmm. Like, don't wait till the end of university to figure those things out. Yeah. Do that now and extrapolate your life out, map those incomes to where you want to live and the cost of living. Right. And then I think if you don't like what you see, you can live life on your terms. And yeah. to me, the ultimate freedom is understanding how to create a business and create demand for your services yourself. Mm. And the easiest way to do that is to figure out where transactions are happening in the economy already for yeah. what, you know, what you're interested in and step into that river of transactions. Yes. So, and, and with some good marketing skills, 
some of those transactions, if you're good at what you do and you have integrity and you follow your word, you know, you do what you say you're going to do, you're going to likely build, build a business out of it. So I think you can follow your passion. It's just that most people don't look past the career. They're just like, oh, I followed my passion. I looked around at the job market. Here's what I'm going to get. This kind of sucks. Yeah. And now I'm stuck. Yeah. Well, no, you're not really stuck. Just take the next level and figure out how to create a business. I mean, the world going forward is going to be less about big companies and more about entrepreneurs and small organizations starting and growing, sure. you know, starting, stopping, restarting. You join another organization for a few years. Like it's going to be very dynamic going forward. So this is something we're all going to have to go down whether you want to or not. Hmm. So I think you can follow your, your passion or if you don't, you know, if you don't want to follow your passion, you can go to just where the money is. Like you can just go into some high paying sales role. And a lot of people do that. They go into Bay street, they go into wall street. But I find if you do that, when you have a little bit of money, if, thing, if, if there's no purpose to what you're doing, you don't have the fulfillment. And it sounds crazy because when you don't have any money, you're like, I'll deal with that problem later. Like, yeah. let me just make some money and I'll just deal with that problem later. Yeah. But I can tell you after dealing with a lot of people through our business is that a lot of people have made good money for many years, but you can see they're hollowed out inside. Hmm. So I agree. Like with, you know, was that a conversation you with your father? You said you were having your father-in-law? Uh, yeah, with my father-in-law today. Father -in -law today. Yeah, your yeah. father-in-law. Like I would say, follow your passion. Yeah. But just do some examination on there to figure out how much money does the market going to pay if you get a job following that passion? How can you build a business separate from a career just for yourself with that? And how would you build the business? How would you get new customers? How will you create new demand for yourself? Yeah. And I find the education system doesn't teach that thought process. And um, I'm, I'm rambling now, Sophia. I, I don't know if that's <laughs> answering what you're asking, but that's good. That's kind of the way I think about it. Like everything's possible. And I would rather follow my passion because it's going to give you some purpose. Yeah. Just yeah. chasing the money and for it. And I think that's what this economy actually creates in people is that they just chase the money. And I don't blame anybody. Yeah. Because look, when you finish school and you get to be a young adult and then you kind of grow a little bit older, you like want to buy a house. Yeah. You want to buy a condo. You want to buy a house. So like if there's a good job over there paying a lot of or, you know, quote unquote, a lot of money. Well, yeah, yeah you're going to go for it. I don't blame anybody for that. But to yeah. me, that's some of the downfall with the society that we live in and the way it's structured today is that it forces people into things that they necessarily don't want to go into. Yeah. Imagine we just had everybody focused on their craft, their passion, and they could create a sustainable life from that. How great would right. that be? I think yeah. happiness would be a lot better. Yeah. And people wouldn't just be living this kind of shallow, hollow life of chasing money all the time. Yeah. So to me, we're unfortunately forcing young people into jobs that they don't necessarily want to go into with the hopes of earning enough money to, you know, create a sustainable life. And even that dream to me is getting further and further away. Yeah. And it's why I think the society, the fabric of society is kind of breaking at all levels right now. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that because this is stuff that you're talking to, you know, our, our groups a lot about. And I think people in general are more aware of it, especially the post COVID era after all this money printing and inflation and all that, like people are starting to understand like this economic system is broken. And admittedly five years ago, even inflation, I didn't really understand what that word meant um you know like i've had to like do my own research and you guys have been really instrumental in all of that but this is not like a high level economics conversation anymore this is affecting every person pretty much day to day mm -hmm. and i'll tell you a quick story i think you'd be proud of me but um we had some friends over and they're about our age 
uh, there's, you know, a young family, um, some kids and kind of complaining about how they have to pay for daycare because she needs to go back to work because they need to be able to pay their mortgage and all yeah. that kind of stuff. Right. And I think especially where we live, like we're in the, the greater Toronto area, uh, you know, very expensive place to live. So it's, it's even more true there, but it's now true across the board just because of what's happened with the economy. Right. And I, I tried to make a point of like, it's this inflation. This is what inflation does. This is what happens when you have like, you know, fiat currency and all this stuff. And all, like, I'm just getting blank stares. Like nobody gets it. And I'm like way too passionate about it and whatever. Um, but it was like, I was just, I guess I was struck at how much even our day-to-day -day decisions, like these great friends of ours who now she has to go back to work. She doesn't really want to, but they have to be a dual income home now, uh, which is going to affect, um, you know, it's so that they can have a, a roof over their head. Uh, you know, they have a really nice house. It's very noble of them. But now the way they raise their kids is not quite the way they want to raise them. Um, you know, the, they're, they're having to make these ridiculous, to me, ridiculous compromises on really core elements of their life. And it was just fascinating to see how all this trickles back to the monetary policy and the economic system that we're in. And I'm wondering if you can, you know, somebody might hear that and just think like I'm out to lunch. And rather than me trying to explain it, I would rather you do it. Can you, can you talk us through that and why the economic system we're in has created these kind of scenarios and not just created them, but made them relatively common? Yeah, it's it's a thing that has really it's it's coming it's coming to real fruition right now for everyone, unfortunately. And it's been this thing that has compounded over the last 30 years. And and what it boils down to is the we are not taught that the current money system that we all work in and play in is based on debt. And the money that we hold in our hands are actually debt receipts. It mm. it's not actually it's actually like a, you know, if you, if you take out a $20 bill and hold it in your hand, it's, it's actually created from debt. And, and I guess that can be confusing when you first hear it. So I think the way I like to explain it to people is, is this, that we have a money supply in this country in Canada. And that money supply is often referred to as M2. That's kind of like our, our money supply in this country. And whatever money that you have in your bank account, or if you add up all the value of whatever you own, you know, some stocks or whatever. If you added all that up today and you then divided it by the money supply that exists in Canada, that is really the purchasing power that you own in this country. Hmm. So if you had like, if you added everything up, you're like, holy smokes, I have like $100,000. And we took the money supply in Canada, which you can find on Stats Canada, and you divide it by that money supply, that is your purchasing power. You have that percentage of the entire money supply. But the thing about it that nobody talks about is the money supply that we're measuring against is constantly changing. Right. So it's kind of like you're, 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 you know, you're running to try to get ahead and you're on like a treadmill and you don't know it. And the <laughs> stats on the treadmill are showing that you're like getting ahead. You've saved a little bit more money. So maybe the $100,000 number turns to 102000 and then 105,000. And then the numbers on the screen, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm getting ahead. But you don't realize you're on a treadmill and you're getting nowhere. And what I mean by that is the money supply in this country has in, been increasing on average since 1969, 8.5% a year, every wow. year. So if you don't increase your income or your family's net worth by 8.5% a year, every year, the $100,000 that we spoke of after two or three years, the money supply is up eight and a half percent. And then another year, it's up another eight and a half percent. And then another year passes up another eight and a half percent. 
So if your $100,000 isn't growing at that same rate, you're going to fall behind. That's what a lot of economists and a lot of people will talk about or refer to as the hurdle rate. That like okay. you have to at least hit this debasement rate of the currency or your purchasing power as an individual or as a family, you're just never going to get ahead. Hmm. And that's why things like real estate and groceries and rent are always getting quote unquote more expensive. Right. When in fact, what's happening, and that's how it's reported in the media, like, oh my gosh, look how expensive everything is getting. But what's yeah. happening is the money supply is increasing. Nothing's changing about the houses that we live in in Toronto. Yeah. Like if you take, another way to think of this is, think of a house in Toronto that, you know, a family member bought 10 years ago or whenever. 10, let's choose 10 years ago. And if you took the cash that was required to buy that house and you sat the cash on the front lawn, for 10 years. Right. And today we come back to that house and we look at the cash that was required to buy that house and we look at the house. What will we notice? We'd probably notice that the money that it would take to buy the house has changed. Right. That's a lot more expensive to buy the house. But now we look at the two piles of things, the, the pile of bricks and lumber, uh, lumber uh, and the roof, the house, and we look at the money. What has changed in 10 years? The house is exactly the same. Yeah. Nothing has changed about the house. What has changed? The value of the dollars that we placed on the front lawn that represented the purchasing price of that house 10 years ago, the value of the dollars has changed. Mm, and why have they right. changed? It's because the money supply in this country keeps increasing. And when the money supply keeps increasing, the money on that front lawn that represented the price of that house has less and less value because the money supply is increasing. Right. So the money is losing value. And nobody talks about it like that. Like a steak is a steak, a hamburger is a hamburger, rent is rent, the house is the house. Yeah. The thing that's changing this country is the value of the dollars is decreasing at such an increasing rate that nobody sees it. So when you have a family like your friends who are like, oh my gosh, like to live, we need now two people to, you know, we need to go back to work and we want to pay for this beautiful house. Whereas my parents in the 1980s, they're both immigrants to this country. But in the 1980s, my father was a drywaller. Right. And we had a, a four bedroom, single family home in Mississauga that on one drywaller salary, we managed to pay for, we did the odd vacation. I don't, I want to want to say we were like, you know, living the high life, but we got to Disney world. We stay, stayed at the days in, I think outside of <laughs> Disney world, but you know, we got there, um, but yeah. also on one, one salary. So we would fly to my, my, my father's from Croatia. We, he would manage to pay for plane tickets for us to go there pretty much every summer. So we live like fully detached house on one salary. We had Christmas right. presents and that kind of stuff. Like we were living, I would call it the classic middle-class life off one salary. Yeah. Today yeah. we can't do that. And your friends in that example, they can't do that because the currency get, is getting debased faster and faster. So even if you invest in the stock market, unless your returns are greater than like eight and a half percent, Right. You're really not getting it. like eight and a half percent return every year on your stock portfolio is like mandatory. Yeah, mandatory. If you're getting 10%, you're just really ahead a little bit. If you're getting 5%, you're not keeping up with the price of things around you. It's why when people invest, they never feel like they're getting any. Right. And it's it's why, you know, I ultimately turned to real estate as an investment. It wasn't like real estate's great. Real estate's like, honestly, it's a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. You have tenants and vacancies and maintenance to deal with. Yeah. But the reason that so many people turn to real estate to try to get ahead is the leverage. 
Because if you put 20% down to buy a property, and in the greater Toronto area since 1969, property prices have gone up about 7%. I think I'm rounding up a little bit. I think it's 6.9%, but let's call it 7%. Okay. If you put 20% down on a property, and appreciation on average is 7% in the greater Toronto area, that is a 35% return on your investment. Right. Because 7% against 20%, the money you put down to control the, the entire asset, is 35%. Yeah. So right. the real estate, by gaining 35% a year, you're outpacing the debasement of 8.5%. Yes. So the, re the leverage of real estate gets you ahead. And then the income from the real estate helps you pay for the debt that you've used to buy it. Yeah. So if you do it smartly, you can usually cover the debt. It's not always perfect, right? Interest rates change. There are a lot of things to pay attention to in real estate, but that's, the, that's your goal in your yes. portfolio to try to have the, the income paying for, for the debt. And then you're kind of getting ahead financially. And it's why ultimately Nick and I turned to real estate. It wasn't like real estate is the be all and end all. It's like, once you understand the game that you have to outpace eight and a half percent, well, where can we outpace eight and a half percent? And real estate became like one of the only ways for someone with not a lot of connections like myself and Nick to walk into a bank and say, hey, you know, we want to buy this property. We only have a little bit of money. Yeah. Will you lend us like all the rest? And the bank was like, oh yeah, sure. Right. You, the average Canadian can't really do that. Yeah. And then you're not really going to do it, to, in my opinion, in the stock market, because the stock market stocks change prices every day. It's, um, you know, it's mark to market on a daily basis. Yeah. So if you borrow to go into the stock market and something comes down for a couple of days, you can get margin called out of that and you have a lot to deal with there. Whereas real estate is kind of like this inefficient, lumbersome kind of thing. Yeah. Where, you know, it's, it, it's not really totally efficient. So prices change, doesn't really matter a lot if you're in it for the long term. Right. And you can kind of survive these peaks and valleys of real estate, but the price of real estate tends to go up because the value of the money is going down. So in the long term, this really kind of works to your advantage to build some net worth with the leverage of, of real estate. Right. And I just think that that, you know, the debasement or sometimes referred to as inflation it's just not understood because the way the media talks about inflation is just like, oh, like, well, prices are going up. Look at the inflation rate. Right. But the real thing that's happening is not the prices are going up. When people talk about inflation, we are inflating the money supply. Yes. So the value of the dollars is going down. Right. That's really what's happening. But nobody sees that. They just see prices going up. Yeah. Am I being clear enough there? Yeah, really, really helpful. And it, I should be clear that, you know, we're, we're Canadians talking about it from a Canadian standpoint, but in America, it's the same, really. It's just, it's all the same dynamics, just on a larger scale. Canada kind of follows all the trends in America. Would that be pretty safe to say as far as money? Yeah, the U.S. Know, leads like, the way. In Canada, yeah. we just watch what the U.S. does. If they're going to, yeah. yeah, like the we U.S. is the too, leader right? of the world with the economy. So the, right. all these things are applying exactly the same way all over the U.S. Yeah. So yeah, so, it's, the, it's the same theory. So the, okay, so the, the money supply is increasing in Canada. It's about eight and a half percent year over year. Um, you know, yeah, typical company, like for people who are working a job, which is a majority of the listeners, some companies have like a COLA at the end of the year, right? Like a cost of living adjustment. And it's usually like, what is it? 2%? 2%. 2 yeah. 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 So you're already 6% behind just by that. And salaries do not increase like even close to 8% a year. Otherwise, even if you're getting promotions and that kind of thing. Um, I guess the one thing that maybe is missing here is why is the money supply increasing? Why does the government print all this money. And, and I think in Canada, this is especially true. Like, 
uh, like I mentioned, I have a kid now. And so one of the things that I forgot to do, I, I, I just did it, but I is apply for the child tax benefit or whatever it is, right? And Canada has all these little benefits. And, you know, during COVID, they had all these extra stimulus to show that, like, see, we're taking care of our people. And on the front end, it's so nice. Like, I get this extra 200 bucks in my account or 300 bucks, whatever it is. But there's a price to be paid for that because the government doesn't actually have the money. They print the money. And I'm wondering if you can maybe connect those dots a little bit as well. Why is it that um, sometimes these great benefits are not what they seem like? And um, how does that play into the government's you know, need, quote unquote, to print money at roughly eight and a half percent a year? OK, so there's two things to think about here. First is the money system itself. And once you understand that the money system in the U.S. or in Canada is based on debt, you, you need to kind of think about it this way, that the first dollar that ever came into existence in the Canadian economy or the U.S., came into an existence with interest. So the very first dollar, and this was, right. it, what I'm sharing didn't actually happen this cleanly. It kind of happened over several decades, but this is how I think about it. And I try to explain it to other people is that the first dollar that came into the Canadian or the US economy, because it's debt, it came in with interest. So if the first dollar came into the economy, it was owed back to the treasury or to the central bank with interest. So right. if the dollar comes into the economy, but a dollar 10, let's use 10% interest just for simplicity. A dollar 10 is owed back to the central bank that put that dollar into existence. How do you get the 10 cents to pay right. back the dollar 10 that is now owed when only $1, the first dollar, came in? Well, what you have to do is you, you have to borrow more money. So if you right. borrow another dollar to pay back the first dollar plus the 10% interest. Well, when you borrow that next dollar, now $2 exists, but $2.20 is owed back. Right. So you can really, and then to pay back the $2.20, like, oh my gosh, I have to borrow like more money into existence. So I have to borrow, now I got to borrow, let's say $4 because I owe $2.20 because of what I just did here. Well, let me try to get ahead a little bit. I'll, I won't borrow $3, like I'm gonna borrow $4. So now $6 exists, but $6.60 is owed back. So what happens in this example is that the debt or the debasement of the money, the increase in the money supply, if you extrapolate it out years and decades, it has to, by design, keep increasing. Mm. That's the whole way the game is played. The whole system is based on this debt-based money. The debt can never go down. The money supply can never go down. If the money supply goes down, if we owed $6.60 back, but imagine there's only $6 in the economy. Well, if we paid it all back, $6 would be paid back, but 60 cents is still outstanding and owed to someone. But there are, is no more that dollars exists. in the economy. Right. The whole system collapses on itself. So that's why when people talk about like, oh, we got to get the debt down or we got to fix this whole issue but it never gets fixed because it can never get fixed. If you right. fix it, the system collapses. So the first thing that we need to understand is that debt must keep growing because if it doesn't keep growing, the system collapses onto itself. Like I simplified it really way down in that dollar example, but that's, sure. ultimately, that's ultimately what's happening. Right. And it's why you just see more and more and more debt. So that was like the, the first thing to think about. Yeah. The second thing is now like at the, oh, sorry, were you going to ask? Well, I was just going to say something. And I guess this is why, like, I remember during the pandemic when prices in Toronto, I mean, all across the board, but Toronto, like they were just exploding, right? 
and the GTA and all that. And I remember um, this was, I, I forget who this was now, but I had some people, they, some friends of ours who they wanted to buy a house. They saw the prices go up and they said, forget it. You know, we'll just wait till they come down. And, um, and we were kind of getting into this conversation. I'm like pretty gentle around this stuff because I'm still learning, but kind of being like, hey, they're not going to come back to where they were before. And they were like, no, they have to, you know, and it's, it's all psychological. It's just like, They've gone up so much. I want them to. Yeah, like yeah, I'm with them. them. I want them. They should. Yeah. Yeah. But they but can't. What, but what you're explaining, I guess, is is part of the reason why these prices can't come down, right? Is because the debt continues to increase in the system and there's no consolidation. There's no reduction of the debt. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so prices, especially of things like real estate and stuff, is just naturally going to inflate as a result, right? Sometimes it's just For faster. short periods of time, they can come slower. down a little bit. So okay, like interest right. rates have come higher now. So yes. you can have these periods where it comes down a little bit and then the conversation or their narrative begins like, oh, here we go. The prices are going to come way down because they need to. And in the back of my mind, I'm always like, eh, you, they can play this game a little bit and have prices come down a little bit. But yeah. it's really not going to come down to where they were t 10 years ago, 20 years ago because of what we just discussed. It really just can't. So you okay. can have like short term episodes where they come down. You know, the great financial crisis in the U.S., property prices came down, but then they rose back up and surpassed them. In 2017, here in Canada, property prices came down a tiny little bit, then they turned around and came back. Right Here, right now in Canada, property prices have come down over the last year, but there looks like they're stabilizing here and people are kind of can't understand why they haven't come down further yet. Yeah, right. You know, that's the narrative here. People are asking like, why are property prices, why have they not come down further? Right. Partly because of because of this. Something else I just want to add, add uh, before we talk about the government that you asked of like how do we get in this situation is that mm -hmm. the reason real estate prices themselves tend to go up the fastest in the economy is because remember our money is debt. And when you and I take on a mortgage, we are creating a new money. When you yeah. sign the paper to get this a mortgage, you're, the first you're creating you blows my mind. Yeah, yeah you're 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 yeah, you're see, Cynthia, you're the prop. You're creating news. <laughs> We're all the problem. We're all the problem. Every time you swipe your credit card and you buy something, it's not like Visa has a savings account where they've stored this money and they're just paying the vendor. Right. You've created new debt. You're cre so every time anyone here goes and swipes their credit card later today to it buy is. something or taps their credit card, boom, you've created new money. You're debasing the rest of our purchasing power. So thank you. We're that's the way the, the money system works. Yeah, right. that's the way it works. And, and in that, in that process, a lot of the new money comes in through real estate because it's such a big purchase price. So real estate benefits from this process the most because it's creating the most dollars and it gets access to these debt driven dollars first. Hmm. So real estate benefits from this, because if I want to go create a lot of new money and I want to buy a house, you know, in somewhere in Oakville, Ontario for, let's say. $3 million. Well, if I go to the bank and I say, Hey, I just want to get $3 million. They're going to say, well, like, you know, how can you call it? What is this for? Give me a business plan. What are you doing? But if I go into the same bank and I say, Hey, I want $3 million to buy that house. They're like, okay, yeah, that's not too hard. Can you, here's your income. What's your income and salary? I think we should be, give a bit of a down payment. I think we can pull that off. Right. So the real estate market creates the most money. So it's the prices of real estate reflect that first all the money gets hit into the real estate market first. But somebody who's earning an income or salary, as you discussed, they get the dollars last. The new money comes into the economy. People spend it. Maybe somebody buys a house, then they put a credit line on there, then they go to the store and they buy some stuff at Home Depot. 
And Home Depot then benefits from those purchases. And then Home Depot pays the salaried people in there. But as they pay the salaried people in there, first the tax man comes in and grabs some taxes from that. And then finally, the person on the salary gets some money. But all the rest of the people in this equation, they got all the money first before the salaried person. Right. And that's kind of why real estate, unfor and I'm not even agreeing with this. Like, I don't agree with this at all. But that's why Nick and I just looked at how the game's being played. And we're like, oh, real estate is where the money is created. The prices of real estate go up the most because the money hits that place the fir you know first. Right. Why don't we just own some real estate? If we do it smartly on leverage, we'll benefit from the madness that is this money system, even though it's all wrong and we actually disagree with it, which is the weird part in our business because people think we're like championing, re championing, championing real estate. And we're really saying, eh, we're not like, it's not the greatest thing ever, but it happens to be where the money's created first and the rewards of the money system are then granted to this space first. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Really helpful. And the other thing I want to share about the government, because you asked, like, how does the government get in this situation is the government's saved no money. So they say wow. they never save money. So right. what they what they can do, because they work with the central bank in the US or in Canada or all around the, you know, the world, they'll go to the central bank and together in tandem through the treasury of the country or the finance department of the country and, and the central bank, they'll just create new money out of thin air to pay for whatever they want to pay for to help them get reelected. So because right. the government gets the money first, anyone in government then benefits usually a lot. You always hear about different things, lobbyists, different people around the government. I think Washington, D.C. is like this. If you look at the average income or net worth of people around like the Washington, D.C. courts, like through the moon. I don't have okay. that stat handy, but last time I checked, it's like, holy smokes. It kind of makes sense because all the money comes into the government for really early on. Like the real estate market, the government probably gets it even earlier, right? Because they're creating yeah. a, lot of, a lot of money with all their spending. So if they're spending... They're racking up new debt, new debt, new debt. How can the government pay off that debt? This goes to your point, like, how do we get in this situation? The government makes all these promises, never saves money, just spends everything and more. That's why they run deficits. The only way to pay the debt off is through more taxes, tax right. your base, to let the de debt default, which Canada or the US doesn't want to do, yeah, or to grow the economy make the economy larger and grow the economy so that they have more money. Government in and of itself is not really good at growing the economy. One way then that they can solve this problem, because those first three just generally are, are not going to work, is inflation. Or back to how we started, debase the money supply. or into mm. even more dollars right. to pay off your current debts, right. but increase your long-term debts <laughs> even more. So, you'll have so to you're kind of like, at some point, just, it's it just going over and over. And it's why this game, you can kind of see the inevitable end. Like if you right. read economic history, you rarely see these systems of what I would call fiat dollars yeah. resolving themselves in some beautiful manner where property prices come down and social services get more money and, you know, everybody kind of gets richer. Usually, unfortunately, it leads to this hyperinflationary type situation, which could be a way off in the distance. Nobody knows when that hits. But it usually just is debasement of the money at a faster and faster rate. Right. And in the last few years, we have been debasing it faster and faster. And now people are finally feeling it. I'm sure your friends or my friends, when you go to the grocery store yeah, and you just look at the price of your grocery bill in the last three years. Wild. Yeah. The gas it's just wild. Groceries. Yeah. 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 So I'm okay, talking that... a lot about a bunch of different things. I'm not sure this is really answering... helpful. No, 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 no. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. And then I guess the one thing I'm realizing as well, like the system, 
de-incentivizes people to do what would be considered financially responsible things like saving money, for example. Because if you if you save money, but the money's losing value and things are getting more expensive, like that system doesn't really make sense, right? Even though saving is the right thing to do. Like I'm a saver at heart, admittedly, but as I've understood how the economy works a little bit more, like I'm, I'm realizing like I, I want to have enough savings to cover emergencies, to cover, you know, maybe like I think my wife and I have a five-month runway, something like that. But anything else oh, beyond awesome. that, awesome. I'm like, you know, trying to get into some vehicles or some assets that are going to, like you said, at least keep up with the debasement, if not outpace it. Um, and I, I don't know, like, do you observe that in, because you're seeing, you're seeing investors across the board um, and you're seeing people who aren't investors as well, I suppose. Do you see that the, the system is kind of affecting our day-to-day -day behaviors around money and how we're handling money? Um, and maybe just to add one more dimension to this, you had somebody on your podcast um, and he was talking about how, like, if anything offers payment plans, he just says yes, because he knows that the money has uh, more value now than it's going to down the road. And so he would rather not part ways with all the dollars. If he could keep some of it now and do something better with it, he'll just take the payment plan. So like, I feel like that's like, the, that's where what it's come to a little bit because of this system. Like, are you observing that? Are people starting to like develop what in other environments would be considered irresponsible personal finance habits, but in this kind of makes sense? Yeah, absolutely they are because there's this unconscious, unconscious feeling that like, oh, this money doesn't hold its value. So you essentially what's happening in the world is people have to work twice. You work for your money. Right. Yeah. And then you work to protect the purchasing power of your money. It's why yeah. every one of your friends and my friends talks about real estate or stocks and everyone starts arguing about the, the best investment. But going back to your earlier point in this discussion, wouldn't it be nice to have a society where everyone can work in their passion project and that whatever money they do earn and are able to save? holds its value and maybe even goes up in value, what right. kind of society would we have then? Yeah. <laughs> but instead, we have a world where people have to work harder or two people have to work just to get by. Then the money that they do take home usually goes to taxes or cost of living. If they are able to save anything, they then have to be armchair global macroeconomic economist to figure out where to put the money to right. protect the purchasing power. Is it in U.S. stocks, Canadian stocks, tech stocks, you know, medical stocks? Is it in India, in China, in Europe? And everyone's got to figure out where to put this. So now when people are at home, when they should be kind of relaxing and kind of planning for the future, they then have to work to just try and protect their purchasing power. Capitalism is the form of uh, the formation of capital. And then you take a risk with that capital. And in exchange for your risk, you get a reward. Right. If you risked incorrectly, you lose. If you risked well, you earn something back. That's gone. We don't, in my opinion, we don't live in capitalism anymore because the great financial crisis in the U.S. changed everything. When those banks were supposed to fail in the U.S., yeah, proper capitalism would have been let those banks fail. It cleans out the system. Yes. New banks come offering better services, likely at a cheaper price. And the market moves on and moves forward. But in 2008, we hit this like crux, this like fulcrum point where everything changed. And instead of letting those things fail, the government came in and said, oh, we'll just like print and debase more money. And here yeah. you go. Here's some of this Band new money everything. to save yourself. And ever since 2008, things have just been like kind of the economic data points. Everything's been like out of whack. And it's mm -hmm. kind of led us 
to this this point that we are today that is just to to what you were discussing people are no longer thinking long term no yeah. one really thinks like no one now thinks okay i'm going to work i'll be able to save 10% of my salary and i'll put that aside and i'm going to build a little nest egg over the next 10 years or 15 years to start a business or you know buy this farmland i want to buy yep everyone just looks at that money and panics and says, oh my gosh, like, do I buy gold? Do I buy silver? Do I buy Bitcoin? You know, do I invest in stocks? Do I buy bonds? You know, everyone's just like panicking on what to do. And it, yeah, it creates this at the individual level. I think it creates short-term thinking. And at the, at the nation state level, like where are the great projects in the US? The US like flew someone to the moon in the sixties. Like where are the great projects? Where are the Canadian great projects? Hmm. You know, if I look through Europe and you look at some of the great architecture in Europe, some of those buildings and some of the different churches there, they were built over generations. Yeah. And they were built over generations because the money held its value. So people could save money. Right. And they can commit to a project yeah. and they could get it done. But today, yeah. if a government was going to commit to a 30-year project with debasement or inflation the way it is now, can you imagine the amount of money they would need You know, in the years 20 to 30? You can't yeah. even plan for that. So we don't get this long-term planning. We don't get this long-term thinking because the government's just like the person is worried about their immediate needs. Right. So like this whole money system, just it destroys long-term thinking financially for families, for everyone. And it just mm. it kind of breeds this, you know, kind of situation where people are just running in circles and you, we vote. It doesn't matter what politician you vote in. It doesn't matter who's in power. Everything kind of just goes down the same path because the money system itself is what's broken. Yeah. Wow. So where, like you talked about kind of this utopic world where we could save our money, it would hold the value and maybe it would even increase in, in value and you don't have to fight debasement and inflation and all that kind of stuff. What would need to happen between now and then for that to actually be a reality? Yeah, I think that's the ultimate question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for that to be a re reality, you know, unfortunately from the history that I've read, I've never really seen a system start like this and then end with a money that was good money. I think the US had a central bank in the early 1800s that they ended up the president of the US then, I forget who, ended up shutting it down. You know, and then they went back to a brief period in the 1800s. Uh, well, I say brief, I think it was like 60 years or something of like sound money. They were on a gold standard. And then right. a central bank came back in. Most of the time throughout history, I've just seen that the currency destroys itself. And there's this kind of slow transition. You know, it's why I used to be a big gold bug. Uh, now, I'm, now I'm a Bitcoiner. Yeah. Um, because I just think that something else emerges that ends up being the true store of value during these times. Yeah. And unfortunately, everyone's so busy in their lives, they don't see it. Yeah, I was just talking to someone, someone actually, you know, the other day about this. And I was kind of explaining to them like, oh, you're always talking about like this Bitcoin stuff as a possible store of value and as a possible new money to kind of replace the mess of what's going on right now. And they're like, oh, I can't really see it. You know, it goes up and down in dollar price all the time. And I don't, I don't really... I don't really see this, how this would work. And I'm like, well, think about it this way. When, you know, I'm old enough to remember when the internet came out and when the internet came out, there was something called voice over IP. And there was this application on all our computers called Skype. 
Do you, do you know, is Skype still around? Do you know Skype? It, is Skype is still around. Yeah, I, I remember okay. Skype was like, yeah, it was cutting edge okay. back in the day. So Skype was like this thing where all of a sudden you can make phone calls and audio or audio and video to somebody like in Europe where my family was buying those cards at a convenience store that you would punch yeah, into the yeah, phone yeah. and you would right. get like cheap, you know, calls to like Europe. But now with Skype, if we could get our family on the internet over in, in Europe, we could communicate over this thing. And it was like, wow. But hardly anybody was doing it at first, kind of yeah. looked crazy. But then it evolved so much that we all started doing it. So much yeah. so that people started dropping their land phone lots. Like, I remember, you know, I'm sure when you were a kid, everyone still had the Bell home phone line. Right. But there was this process that occurred with Bell phone lines is that at the beginning, you probably heard one or two people, or maybe my age is the better example of this. Like one or two of my friends said, we, we just got rid of our Bell line. We're just using our mobile phones now. And you were like, whoa, <laughs> you don't have a landline at home? That's great. Like, what? Why? That's yeah. crazy. Really? You're just on mobile? Oh, like, yeah, we just, we just got rid of it. But 80% of the, your friends were still had the landline. Yes. And then a few more years pass and more and more people you start hearing. And, and, and Carol and I were one of the last ones, actually, my wife okay. and I. And more and more friends started saying, we got rid of our landline. We moved. We thought, oh, forget it. And I guess we hadn't moved yet. Maybe that, you know, there was no reason to. Um, and then eventually we moved. And I think the only person that was using our landline at that point was my mother-in-law. Like okay. she was the only person calling us on that landline. And eventually... Carol and I were like, you know what? I think we could just tell her to switch the number that she's calling to call your, your mobile <laughs> and we'll just get rid of our landline. But yeah. that process probably took from like the late 90s to us getting rid of our landline. There's probably like a 15 year window there. Yep. And I feel that's what's going to happen to replace the current money system. That we're mm. early on now and people who are buying Bitcoin and saying, hey, you, you know, it can sound rather annoying. I know I can because that's all I want to talk about. But I, I'm kind of looking around and to me, this is the new kind of Skype or the new thing that's replacing the old thing. Yeah. And maybe I'm an early adopter and I'm like, holy smokes, guys, this old system is horrible. It's debasement. It's all these things. I'm just going to keep some of my purchasing power in this thing called Bitcoin because it cannot be debased. It's finite. It's permissionless. It's permissionless. It's censorship resistant. This yeah. thing is a protocol, global it's replacing a net, the old traditional financial network is being replaced because this Bitcoin thing is not just a digital asset. It's actually a network. Right. Like I'm going over here and going to keep some of my savings in this thing. And then people around you are like, oh, that's crazy. But five more years, more and more people do it. You can see the adoption curve is growing. And yeah. 10 years from today, the last group that maybe didn't jump on board is finally like, oh, I'm going to grab some of this stuff too. And I think that's what happens from the Canadian dollar or the US dollar to a new hmm. system. There's this, this transition where the old system just withers away hmm. and this new system emerges. And if you can jump into the new system early because of, because it's money, the purchasing power that you may potentially gain from jumping in a network early before the masses jump in. Yeah. Could be, you know, could be exciting. Yeah. So it's a big topic and, and it, it's tough, but that's how I see things you know, breaking down that just over time, the value of the dollar, the government's print more and more decreases further and further, and a new system kind of rises out of that mess. And I think we're at the early stages of it right now. Yeah, it makes sense. How are you doing for time? I'm good. Yeah, I'm totally good. Yeah. Okay. Because now that, now that you open up the Bitcoin can of worms, I feel like we, we can cover a couple of uh, other things here. So um, one of the most helpful things that you told me about Bitcoin, because I was very like, I know, I know you have your own story where you didn't really see the value of it. 
you have to pay your tax bill in Canadian dollars. So, you know, how the heck does something like Bitcoin have any value? Um, I was definitely similar opinion. Like, and, and this is where like the people who invest in Bitcoin sometimes can be such bad representations of what Bitcoin is. Because <laughs> I just had a bunch of jokers who were big on Bitcoin. And I was like, I'm not going to invest in anything that you think is good because you're just, you know, like I can't take you seriously. Um, but uh, the one thing that you said that was really helpful is that Bitcoin is not an investment which I think is how a lot of people view it. They see it as just another investment vehicle. The price fluctuates, it's unreliable. You know, that's something that like a Dave Ramsey would say is like, it doesn't have the 30 year history, you know, it's fluctuated, mm -hmm. it's volatile, whatever. Um, and you said that you don't see Bitcoin as an investment, you see it as insurance against the monetary policy. And I'm wondering if you can break that down even just a little bit more for people who hear Bitcoin and all the, all the defenses are kind of coming up. Um, and talk about just why it's, it's not, that's not the right way to look at it is the price and uh, from an investment lens, but rather kind of the hardness it is as a money, like the sound money and why that makes it so valuable. Sure. Yeah. And I think that is the biggest stake is that my own friends will say, you know, if you come by here for dinner again and <laughs> yeah, you talk about Bitcoin, about <laughs> yeah. you can leave. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it, to me, it's such an important thing. And it's unfortunate that in school, we're not taught this, but. And I think the biggest attack from like Wall Street or Bay Street types will be, oh, there's no intrinsic value. Like I always hear that. There is no intrinsic value, Tom. Yeah. There's no intrinsic value. There's like, it's nothing. Whatever. You yeah. know? And I guess, my, you know, the way to look at this to me, because I did dismiss it. I'll never forget. After the 2000, 2017 bubble, I thought, oh, tulips, tulip mania, you know? And I think <laughs> yeah. in 2018, I looked at the price. I don't know why. And I, I think I expected it to be zero or close to zero, like three bucks or something, because it sure. went up to 17,000 and kind of crashed down. And it was at like $6,000. And that was like, it kind of hit me like, wait, what? Like, how is this thing not zero? Like, how is it still, someone's willing to spend $6,000? Right. And I still dismissed it. And it wasn't until the pandemic in 2020 where I really did a deep dive and I realized how wrong I was. But the way to think about it is, the characteristics of there's nothing about intrinsic value. That is such an, an incorrect frame of reference to evaluate anything that be, could, could be considered money. Hmm. When you break down money, money has value for all the different characteristics and for a few functions that it serves. And some of the functions that it serves would be a store of value, a medium of exchange, and a unit of account. So first it holds value. And then it, you're able to like exchange, you know, use it as a medium of exchange. And then eventually it becomes so common that people denominate goods and services as a unit of account in Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is so early. This would be like the Renaissance period in Florence when like the Medici family first stamps a gold coin. You know, like we're talking <laughs> okay. 600, when, I guess that's like 600 years ago, something like that. I can't remember if it was the 1200s or the 1400s, six to 800, whenever it was, hundreds of years ago. And that first gold coin that comes into existence, people are trying to figure out like it's volatile because no one understands like, oh, like how many cows do I exchange for this gold coin? You know, and the right. first farmer who does it might be like 20 cows. And then the next day, someone's like, oh, I don't know about that gold coin. I'll give you 12 cows. So the price right. of this gold coin went in cows from 20 to 12. The next day, someone's like, I'll give you 22. And it's very volatile at the early stages of it. But then through hundreds of years, it kind of stabilizes. And it proves that it's a store of value because in my silly example, you can always buy cows with your, your gold coin. And so okay. there's, 
once once something proves it's a store of value, it then slowly kind of graduates into a medium of exchange. And I think the and then finally a unit of account. And Bitcoin is at its store of value phase where people are like, oh, this thing is holding some value. Like it's not really dying. Mm. And it's easing its way into its medium of exchange. You know, when you hear countries like El Salvador, Nigeria, there are countries all over the world where more and more people are kind of using it as a medium of exchange. So we're at the store value phase of Bitcoin and we're just slowly getting into the medium of exchange phase would be my opinion. Okay. So there's some kind of fun functions of money, but then there's also characteristics of money. You know, like what uh, a good form of money is usually the most saleable good in, a, in an economy across space, time, and scales. And a most saleable good is the easiest good to get rid of. It's the most liquid good. Yeah. And right. it's most saleable across space in that a gold coin you could put in your pocket and travel to another country. So that was, it was very saleable across space, unlike maybe, you know, a, a, a crate of apples or something. Right. So gold served as better money because it was more saleable across space. Across time, gold doesn't decay. The, the, the cart of apples would decay. So it holds its value across time. So it's very saleable across space and time. And then across scales, gold can be chopped up into little pieces of gold. Right. You know, you can carry an ounce of gold, you can have 10 ounces of gold, you can have like a, a, a sliver of gold. So, and all those are uniform so that if you choose them to be, so it's saleable across scales. Right. And so those are some of the characteristics of, of money. And when you look at money and with that frame, framework, you, you come to realize after studying it, Bitcoin kind of serves all these things, right? It is a very saleable good across space. You can move Bitcoin. It's on a network. Um, it, it's very saleable across time. It doesn't decay. It doesn't lose its value. There's only a set amount of Bitcoin with a massive computing network that's kind of protecting it. It doesn't decay at all. And it's saleable, saleable across scales. And that can be chopped up into like 100 million little Satoshis. Each Bitcoin can be chopped up into tiny little units. So now we can start to look with this frame of reference of like, oh, you know, this might be a form of money and we can start to evaluate it against the Canadian dollar right. and start looking at some of the, 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 the functions of the Canadian dollar. So anyone who is going down that path, I would argue the Canadian dollar doesn't have any intrinsic value. It's just that the government has said you must pay your taxes in it. So by decree or by fiat, yeah, they have decreed, hey, this thing has value because you got to pay taxes in it. Right. And that holds a lot of weight. Yeah. So we all kind of do our business in Canadian dollars. Yes. But my, my point in this is that, that those dollars are getting debased at such a rate that when more and more people realize that the characteristics and functions of money are represented in another good in the economy really well. In a better way, yeah. In a better way. And that's what Bitcoin is doing. That you're like, oh, okay, well, I'll still pay my taxes in Canadian dollars. Like, I'm, you know, I'm a law-abiding Canadian or American dollars in, in the U.S. But... I'm going to start holding more and more of my savings in this other form of money called Bitcoin. Yeah. And in fact, maybe I'll start transacting in it. And the government doesn't like that. They're going to like tax you on the sale of it, all these kinds of things. Right. But you can see when you begin evaluating it just on the functions and the characteristics of what is good money, the Canadian dollar really is only holding its value, not because it has any intrinsic value. Yeah. It's because the government's saying, hey, we're going to like imprison you if you don't pay your taxes in these Canadian dollars. Yeah. Like, this is what's happening. Right. So it's by decree. The only value it has is by decree. The US dollar is very similar. The US yeah. military is the thing behind the US dollar that basically says, hey, this thing has value yeah. and you better exchange oil for it 
Right. And if you don't exchange oil in the price of US dollars, guess what? We got these big military ships and these planes and we're gonna come and cause problems. Yeah. So like the form of money is backed by these things that our government has put in place. Right. Pure sound money doesn't need a government behind it. It has the yeah. characteristics and functions of money in and of itself. And this is compared. like a huge, this is a huge discussion, by the way. So I don't know if I'm doing a good job of introducing no, some sure. of these concepts. No, no, it's really good. I was just going to say the, the three qualities you mentioned. So time, space, and scale. So comparatively speaking, uh, the Canadian dollar or US dollar, like a, a fiat currency, um, still has saleability across space because you can transfer money relatively easily. You can bring it with you. Um, it can scale. You can break it down into dollars and cents and have bigger denominations. But I guess the issue is time, right? Time is where the value does not hold. And that's what we talked about earlier, the eight and a half percent year over year, the supply increases. Is that where it kind of loses in this comparison of like what's more sound money? Absolutely. Across time is the big one. And I that's would argue space okay. too, because when I go visit some relatives in Croatia, it's true. really difficult for me to use Canadian dollars and like just yeah, quickly true. send it to them. I got to either wire money beforehand if we're paying, you know, we have a condo over there. So maybe we're paying for some something. I got to wire money there, pay like $50 fee here, yeah. wire money there. Then they pay a fee to get it out of the bank over there and pay for it. It's like just this complicated thing. So I would argue even within Canada, yeah, it, you know, it, it, across a space, it's very saleable. But yeah. across the world, the Canadian dollar isn't the greatest. I mean, you're, you know, we're, and listen, like I'm on a, you know, we're, I live in just outside Toronto. I'm close to the U.S. border. I earn Canadian dollars here. But if I was born just a few, you know, miles to the south mm. in the U.S., then I earn American dollars. Like yeah. what? Like so, based on where I'm born, yeah. And the dollars right. hold the value differently. The U.S. Yeah. dollar holds its value much better than the Canadian dollar. Yeah. So true. based on where I'm magically born dictates the the type of currency I get to use. Like think of my cousins in Croatia they and my aunts, they went through hyperinflation in the 90s. So based on where they were born, they got the dinar. They didn't get the US dollar. Yeah. And the dinar hyperinflates. You know, whereas what Bitcoin represents to me is a global monetary network that is accessible globally. Yeah. Equally to every person. Whether you're anywhere on the continent of Africa, South America, Europe, North America, Asia, we all are accessing the same form of money. Hmm. And I just think we're at that stage where people don't see that yet. And they're so like, well, the government tells me this is the thing I have to use as money. And we're like, well, who's the government? We are the government. Right. We get to decide. Yeah. We are the government of this area. <laughs> right. This is, if something's silly, we don't have to like go with it forever. Yep. Like let's force in some change here. Yeah. And, you know, the way I'm personally forcing in some changes, I just, I believe in Bitcoin. I, I like talking about, I'm one of those, uh, Sathya, I'm one of those annoying people that I'm going to show up <laughs> for dinner at your house and say, hey, let's talk about that Bitcoin thing. <laughs> no, you, you rep Bitcoin well. You rep it well. Um, <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe one, one last question. I know I've said that a few times, but um, for you personally, so, you know, you're, I think you've just crossed 50. Congratulations on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you. you know, your kids are, you know, your oldest is university age, your daughter's not too far off. And so I guess, I guess what I'm saying is you're kind of like on the back half of your life. And I have to imagine your priorities. I'm on the lap back. I'm on the lap back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and I have to imagine your priorities are probably different with your personal finances now than they were back when you and Nick were buying up properties in your 20s and and whatever. And you talked about leverage and um you know, I'm like, "Oh, I I hate leverage. Like it's just not my 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 persona has no bend towards leverage, but I just know too much to not to not play the leverage game at least a little bit." Um but I have to I I guess what I'm curious is like, do you find that your are you still leveraging quite a bit? Are you reducing that risk profile? Are you are you thinking? Are you a guy who thinks a little bit about multi generational wealth and what you're going to leave behind for your kids, or are you more of like uh, imparting skills over you know wealth itself? Um, I guess I'm just uh, now I'm just kind of picking your brain, just like a free for all here. But like, what are some of the things that you think about with your own money and your finances as you kind of um, you know enter this new stage of life and and maybe look look beyond your your own life and to the life of future generations? I, I think, um, and, and we get to work with a lot of people at Rockstar at all different kind of ages and stages. And I think it's just mapped to what stage you are financially because we've met, because what I'm about to answer is that when we were in my 20s, Nick and I were much more willing to take on a extreme amounts of leverage. We really had nothing to lose. Yeah. So sure. like just take on extreme amounts of leverage and then you know, through our thirties, having kids, and then in our forties, and then you accumulate a little bit more, your risk pro profile goes down. And now at like 50 or 51 soon, I'm not really looking to take on the same amount of leverage that I once took on. It's like, yeah. I don't really need to take any more on any more leverage. In fact, I don't like the risks of leverage anymore. I kind of have a bit of a net worth that I'm comfortable with, and I can choose my you know, I can choose my places to maybe apply some leverage, but it's not like all out leverage, like in our twenties. Right. But having answered that, it's not an age related thing because we have met people in their, like, you know, we worked with someone, she was in her fifties and her family, her, you know, one of her children needed some pretty urgent medical help. They ended up um, diving into real estate in their fifties as a way to build up their finances. They actually sold their family home to raise some money to get some income properties. Wow. And I know to people, this is going to sound risky. This is what they did. And they were able to accumulate a bit more net worth that allowed them to serve the family's needs. Right. And ultimately, you know, several years later, they bought a family home again, you know, so they were in a stage of life where they had to apply leverage. Yeah. Yeah. And now they're not in that state anymore. So I just think it's not an age related thing. It's more related to what stage you are in your life and what you're trying to achieve financially. If you're trying to kind of quote unquote, get ahead and beat that 8.5% hurdle rate. Yeah. Leverage <laughs> is like one of the better ways to do it. Yeah. And then once you've accumulated whatever it is enough for you and for everyone, it's different, then you can kind of peel back the leverage a little bit. And it's a beautiful feeling peeling back the leverage a little bit. Like yeah. it's, it's nice. Like you're not yeah. thinking about it as much. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I just think it's more not related to age and more related to your financial state. Like we've worked with people in their sixties. Who jumped into real estate and applied yeah. leverage and I I know it just I know I know it sounds it sounds oh, wild great. Right? yeah it's cool yeah and uh, and they they've been on on you know on uh, shared their story and uh, yeah so I just think it's it's more like if you're trying to beat the system you're gonna have to apply some leverage at some point yeah um, do it wisely do it smartly surround yourself by a team of people that yeah. really are gonna support you well because applying leverage can be dangerous. So yeah. you want an experienced team around you to kind of like shake you up a little bit if you're doing something incorrect or something a yeah. little bit too crazy. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of the way I look at it now. And then as far as, you know, the kids and stuff, um, and, and a legacy, a lot of people come to us at Rockstar and say, Hey, I want to leave this legacy. And, um, I think I'd like to, you know, our, our backgrounds are that our parents don't come from much and uh, both sides of our family. Same. So, uh, yeah. So we'd like to, I definitely like to leave something, but I, I'm not, um, too worried about leaving this huge financial legacy because I think I'm robbing my children of the opportunity to develop themselves by building yeah. that up for themselves. Yeah. So I think if we can do it smartly, there, there definitely will be some things passed on. Um, yeah. and if you call that a legacy, I guess that's what that would be, but it's not my chief aim or primary goal at this point. It's more, what skills can I insert? What self image can I help them create of themselves? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What skills can I help them create? How can I help their confidence? How can I build their resourcefulness, their resiliency? Because if I meet somebody who can communicate well, is resourceful and resilient and understands market forces, how a market dictates what a money is, how a market responds to different skills, then you have total freedom. Yeah. Like ever since I began to understand some of these things, if we go back to our marketing and sales talk, I'm like, holy smokes, I can be dropped in South America with my family or in Europe or anywhere. I'm going to apply the same skills to anything I want to do there. And I know I'll be okay. And to yeah. me, that gives you ultimate, and to me, that's living life on my terms. Just having that confidence in the back of my mind that like, you know what? I can, I can sustain myself in any situation. Yeah. And that to me is pure freedom. And that to me is living life on my terms. Yeah. You know, the vacations are nice. Definitely. We are. And you know, we, we are, Nick was just in Switzerland skiing. He's coming back. I'm off to Florida tomorrow. You know, like we're uh, Thursday, sorry, not tomorrow. Um, but uh, yeah, we're living a good life. We and 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 there's definitely financial rewards that we're enjoying. Of course, uh, living life on my terms is is having a, a positive self image for myself. Yeah. Can I help my children have a positive self image? Can I help them understand the development of skills is important? Yeah. And can I help them understand how a market works, hmm. both economically, financially, and with their careers and what they want their purpose to be in life. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good, man. Really good. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom here, Tom. I, I really appreciate the time. Um, I want to mention two resources that I hope people check out. Number one is your podcast, Your Life, Your Term Show. You guys have a really good array of guests from personal development, uh, you know, real estate and economics, um, and just a little bit of everything in between. I feel like I've, uh, I only subscribe to two podcasts and yours is one of them. I've listened to it religiously for years now. And um, the uh, the Bitcoin Standard by Saifedean Amus, I think that's a really good read. And you're the one who said, uh, this actually helped me get into it. You said, if you read even just the first 70 pages where he details the history of money, this is a guy who's got his PhD in economics. Um, so he's not like some Bitcoin nut. Um, he's just like knows his stuff, uh, but has also concluded that Bitcoin has a lot of value long-term. Um, but I, I really did learn a lot from that book. I, I had a dictionary beside me for the first little bit because he's pretty verbose. He's got some big words in there. Yeah, does he? I, I forget that. But I'm so glad you read that, though. I think that should be mandatory reading for everyone. You're right. Those first so four good. chapters are you understand yeah. economics and the way the world works better than anything you'll learn at school. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, really, really good stuff. Um, do you have any other resources you recommend maybe for somebody who's even just hearing about some of this stuff for the first time and just wants to dip their toes in the water, what would be a good way for them to do that? Um, there is, um, there's a great medium article that got turned into a book by Vijay Boyapati. 
and it's called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. Okay. I think he does a really good job, uh, if you don't want to dive into a full book, of introducing it. So hmm, The cool. Bullish Case for Bitcoin, I think he turned it into a book. I know he did, but it started as a Medium article. So if you just wow. Google like The Bullish Case for Bitcoin VJ, I'm sure you'll see the... Um, the the article and the other book that really helped me understand where things are headed in the next 10 years is The Price of Tomorrow, which is a book on productivity and artificial intelligence and the economy by Jeff right. Booth. Yes, yes. So okay. that book really helped me frame things and helped me conclude, wow, the measuring stick in which we're me measuring our incomes and our savings is completely broken, the dollar, yeah. and it will be reflected in a harder form of something. Um, and uh, The Price of Tomorrow, really, do, it's an easy read. Um, have you read that book yet? No, I haven't. Highly recommend that book. Easy read. And uh, yeah. it's it's a book on, you know, just the economy. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. And Jeff Booth, if uh, if you ever get the chance to listen to Jeff Booth on any podcast, definitely pay attention. Super smart guy. Okay. Yeah, amazing. We'll put links in all the show notes. And uh, and your your podcast is really good too, man. You guys are putting out some great content. So I'll make sure... People I appreciate that. Thank you. We don't have a play. You hear our pod. We do. We hit record and just start rambling. So I appreciate yeah. you saying that. Thank you. Just you're, like you're we did too... today, man. It was perfect. <laughs> yeah, it was great. But thanks so much for your time, Tom. Appreciate this, man. Sathya, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Pleasure being here. Well, there you have it, man. I'm so grateful for Tom. Like I said, I've learned a lot from him and, uh, Ooh, we could have gone for probably another hour and a half, two hours just talking about Bitcoin and the mindsets around money and some of that stuff. So uh, look, go check out their podcast. It's called Your Life, Your Terms. And that is sort of the tagline of all their work. It's the summation of what they're all about. And these guys are, are, are like a force to be reckoned with. Tom is incredibly humble. He will always understate the work that he does. But if you guys actually showed up to one of their events where a thousand plus investors will come early on a Saturday morning just to hear Tom's presentation about the economy, um, their podcast you know, that reaches tens of thousands of people around the world every single week. Uh, these guys are, are very successful. You know, Tom, Tom is, is practicing what he preaches and it's really, really cool to see. So Your Life, Your Terms is the name of the show. Uh, that podcast should be linked in the show notes. And um, if you are more in, if you wanna learn more about um, economics, we actually, um, afterwards, we just talked about a couple resources, um, that he didn't mention. So, uh, we talked about the bullish case for Bitcoin. That was an article. We talked about the price of tomorrow by Jeff Booth. Uh, we also talked about the Bitcoin standard by Saifedean Amus. Okay. So those are, there's an article in there and then there's two books and then psycho cybernetics is another book that he recommends. This is an old book. I believe I haven't read it myself. Um, but he said for people who are looking up kind of, um, develop personally people that want to, you know, better their sense of self and improve their self-worth and all that kind of stuff. This is an opportunity for you to do that. And, um, the, and he said, this book is basically as good as it gets. So psycho cybernetics, uh, put a link to that in the show notes as well. It's all there. And I really encourage you guys go check this stuff out. I want to see you guys all flourishing in your lives, your marriages, your recovery, your faith, your fitness, and your finances, and hopefully today's episode helped you do that just a little bit more. So without uh, without further ado, that's everything. Appreciate you guys. Uh, please share this as you're able and as you feel necessary. In the meantime, we'll see you next week. That is everything, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And again, if you got some value out of this, or maybe you know someone in your life that could get some value out of it, make sure you are sharing it with them. Uh, that helps us grow. It helps us get the word out and you just might change their life in the process. Much love. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. 
Hey everybody, it's Sathya again. Thanks for listening to Unleash the Man Within. I wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a free ebook that I wrote for you called The Ultimate Guide to Porn Recovery. It provides a basic framework for the recovery process and a few of my top tips completely free of charge. You can get it now at www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. That's www.ultimaterecoveryguide.com. Now, if you've been impacted by the podcast and you want to show some support in less than 60 seconds, there are three ways you can do that. First, you can leave a rating or review on your podcast platform. This lets people like you know that the content here is valuable. Secondly, you can share this episode with someone in your life that might benefit from the content. If you're passionate about helping other people experience freedom and success in their lives, this is one of the easiest ways to do that. And lastly, you can subscribe. I personally only listen to the podcast that I subscribe to. If you're seeking daily encouragement, guidance, and insight in your recovery journey, I highly recommend subscribing to Unleash the Man Within. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting with you very, very soon. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast by Sathya Sam and his guests are for general information only and should not be considered medical, clinical, or any other form of professional advice. Any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk.